Welcome to Growth Chat, a podcast series where we interview economists and social scientists asking about their most recent research papers and publications. The aim of this podcast is to share the invaluable work that economists, sociologists, anthropologists, and historians do, making it accessible to the general public and students, independently from their background and preparation. I'm your host, Marco Lecci, PhD student in economic at Monash University, and with me, directing the interview, is Sasha Baker, professor in economics at Monash and Warwick University. Enjoy the interview. Hi, hi Marco, hi Andrea. Andrea Matranga is our guest today. He is assistant professor of economics at Chapman University in California. Andrea and I met uh, four years ago in Moscow, and he told me about his exciting research, and that's why we thought we should have him today. And he will be talking about his paper that has a very intriguing title. It's called The Ant and the Grasshopper, Seasonality and the Invention of Agriculture. And our discussion today will take us back more than 10,000 years to the times of the Neolithic Revolution. So welcome, Andrea. And maybe you can start by giving us a sense of uh, what the title is about, The Ant and the Grasshopper. Absolutely. So uh, The Ant and the Grasshopper, it references this uh, fable uh, originally by Aesop uh, and then uh, popularized by La Fontaine in France. And uh, it's the story of uh, uh, an ant who's working all summer and uh, a grasshopper that's uh, singing all summer. And the grasshopper thinks that the ant is foolish for, for working so hard. And then when winter comes, uh, then the grasshopper has no food while uh, the ant has been storing food uh, for winter. Uh, and then depending on the version, either the ant lets him in or the grasshopper starves, uh, you know, depending how hard uh, you want to, you know, traumatize your kids, you can sort of <laughs> choose a different ending. Um, and, uh, and that's exactly what happens sort of in, in, in my story for the Neolithic Revolution, in which the, the main driver uh, for the Neolithic originally is a desire to store food for winter. Um, so it's, that is the driver for, for becoming sedentary first and storing food, even though it's wild food. And then later that moves on to agriculture. Um, I so I found that the title very fitting. Uh, and then, so that's why I picked it. That, that's going to be very interesting. And I think it's going to be very useful to give a little historical background for your paper, because we're going so back in time um that absolutely. probably the listeners will love a little historical background absolutely so so the the um, so there's the the, the the so the human modern humans who humans in one form or another as hominids are a couple million years old but um anatomically modern humans that look you know just like we do are about 150 to 200,000 years old and we seem to have originated in africa and from there, we've spread uh, all over the world. Um, the last place was the Americas between 20,000 and 15,000 years ago. Uh, but everywhere had humans by that time. And throughout this entire period, everybody is a hunter-gatherer. So that means, as far as we know, so that means that they are gathering um, uh, wild foods and hunting uh, wild animals, gathering wild plants and hunting wild animals. And there's this uh, weird thing that happens in the brain when people say, um, you know, hunter-gatherers, everybody just thinks about the hunting. Uh, so you imagine somebody with a spear. You don't necessarily imagine somebody with a basket, you know, picking fruit. But what it seems to be is that actually most of the calories came typically from plants. It was also more sort of dependable. While uh, hunting was important because of protein and fat, 
and uh, sort of so basically the the the, the plants were what kept the, the the band alive from day to day, while you know the the meat was sort of like a windfall. The other thing that's counterintuitive about hunting is that a lot of it is actually trapping. So when we think of hunting, we imagine sort of what today is sports hunting, some guy chasing, uh, you know, you know, a buffalo or whatever with, with a spear. Uh, but uh, that's not a very repeatable way of putting food on the table for a family. So a lot of it was small game. A lot of it was game drives, uh, similar to the tonada in Sicily. Uh, so basically, they would basically chase animals off um, the, a ledge or sort of coral them with a lot of people. So it's sort of trying to put, make it a little bit less risky uh, for the hunters and uh, a little bit more repeatable in terms of what the outcome is rather than like, let's just go into the forest and see if I bump into anything. Um, but but that was that was our, our ancestors. They were, they were hunters and they were gatherers, but there was no food production. They were just um, um, taking natural foods uh, from where they were and incredibly adaptable. So from, you know, the Sahara uh, to the North Pole or well, close to the North Pole, very different groups with very different strategies, but still able to, to, to find enough natural food. Um, and the other thing that goes with it is nomadism. So that means that instead of living in one place, typically uh, our ancestors were moving around a lot uh, either on a fixed pattern, so there would be like a winter pasture and a summer pasture, and they were moving in between the two, or um, sort of um, more randomly, depending on where the game was going, maybe this area had burned down, maybe the rains, you know, they'd seen the big clouds in that direction. But in any case, every three months, every two weeks, depending on the group, um, but they were constantly moving. And this allowed them to follow the animals, which were also trying to get away from the humans, and, and that was one of the reasons why they had to do this. Uh, and then about, uh, well, starting around 12,000 years ago, um, you start seeing movement, uh, both things change. So you start seeing the first agricultural settlements. So you start seeing agriculture and you start seeing settlement. So we move from nomadic hunting and gathering, two things change, they become sedentary in one position, and also they start uh, domesticating plants. And uh, um, so that means what domestication, um, well, there's various definitions. The one that we're using is when the plant becomes unable to reproduce by itself in the wild. So if you have a wheat field, the wheat, uh, the plant has lost the ability to disperse the field. If a human doesn't come and take it and you know, break the ear of corn and, and plant them, that the entire field is gonna go extinct. Sometimes there's a rare mutation and it goes back to the wild variety. These are called weedy varieties, uh, but most of the individuals go extinct without uh, uh, sort of human intervention. And the interesting thing is you don't see this once. Typically people think of the Middle East, which is the oldest one, but actually uh, there's been at least seven times that this has happened semi-independent. Well, I mean, seven times where it's happened independently. And then each of these have, for example, some people say also Iran, perhaps was an independent agricultural invention, but it was so close and close in time that it's not really sure. Um, and so this was, it happened with wheat and barley in the Middle East. It happened with rice in South China. It happened with foxtail millet in Northern China. Uh, it happened with um, another kind of millet uh, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. It happened with uh, potatoes uh, in uh, the Andes. 
It happened with um, uh, May corn, maize uh, in uh, Mexico. And it also happened with uh, sunflowers and squashes in Eastern North America. So these are very different environments. If you think of how different the climate is in Eastern North America versus Sub-Saharan Africa uh, or the Sahel area, these are as different a climate as which, in which people can live in as, as you can find on Earth. Um, and it happened yeah. between 12,000 and 5,000 years ago. So with 200,000 years of anatomically modern human, it seems to have happened in a very restricted period of time when, when we look at, our, at an archaeological scale. And the other puzzle is that as they start farming, they actually become shorter. Um, so it looks like as they farm, they're actually eating less. So these are sort of the puzzles. Like, why did they, they do it before? Why did they do it in this particular place in time? Why did they do it in all of these different places? What do they all have in common? And why did they do this even though it meant becoming, uh, it would meant eating less and being less healthy uh, by, by the looks of the skeletons at least. These are the puzzles that I'm trying to answer. Cool. So what is your story? So why do you think people went from hunter-gathering to being right. farmers? So the, the, the idea is that it's a two-stage thing because there's a chicken and egg problem. If you're nomadic, you can't farm because if I plant something you know, in my home and then I move away for, for the next six months, I'm not going to be there to protect that plant and I'm probably not going to be there when it matures. In fact, I'm not even going to know that that garbage, you know, people typically favor a garbage story where people were throwing away like some seeds and then it grows there and you can see it. If you don't revisit that at exactly the right time, you're not going to even know. Uh, maybe an animal comes by and eats it before you get back. So it's very hard to develop agriculture as long as you are uh, uh, a nomad. So how can you develop agriculture while remaining nomadic? Or if you don't have agriculture, why would you become sedentary? Because by becoming sedentary, you're losing uh, a lot of your flexibility. So as long as you are uh, nomadic, you know, the animals move away, there's a fire, there's a drought, whatever problem, you can just pick up sticks and leave as, as the saying goes uh, and go to some place which is a little bit better. If you stay in one place, on the other hand, um, uh, you're not diversified uh, as much as if you are nomadic. So why would you become sedentary before you have farming? But how can you develop farming if you still um, um, uh, don't know how to farm? Sorry, why would you become sedentary if you don't have farming? But how do you develop farming if you're moving around all the time? These seem very, there's, there's a chicken and egg problem. And what my story is, which builds on work by an anthropologist called uh, Testart. Well, he's French, so I guess it's Testart. Um, and uh, uh, what it basically is, is that one reason to become sedentary is to store food. So if you are in a highly seasonal environment in which it's very repeatable, there's a lot of food during the summer, there's no food during the winter, or there's a lot of food during the rainy season, there's no food during the dry season. Either of those things works equally well for my story, whether it's um, weather, it's temperature seasonality or it's rainfall seasonality. Then there's a very simple solution to this. If you have a storage technology, which is to store food during the summer and then slowly consume it during the winter. Now, the problem with this is that food is heavy. So you're gonna have to make a decision. Do I want to smooth my consumption by moving around, by diversifying geographically? Or do I want to smooth my consumption by storing food? But you can't do both. 
because even if you're a special forces soldier with the latest, uh, you know, freeze dried, uh, you know, super compact food, you can carry about two weeks of food uh, for yourself. And, you know, if you're also carrying a kid, you have to carry two weeks of, you know, it's one week of food for you, one week for the kid, and you're carrying the kid, uh, which is also a problem that, that nomads have uh, just generally, but especially you're not going to be able to carry six months, nine months, 10 months worth of food yeah. uh, if you're moving around. So you're going to have to become sedentary because you're going to spend part of the year filling up those stocks. And then you're going to spend the rest of the year eating from those stocks. And even if there was some intermediate period where you're neither, you know, putting food into it nor uh, eating from it, uh, you still have to guard it. So effectively, you just have to sit on it. Um, now, caching, you can also have as a nomad. So if you look at Inuit populations in Alaska, a very common, or in, or in Canada, or in, 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 in Northern Russia, a very common thing is, you know, you've killed two seals and you were lucky, you eat one and you stash the other ones under a bunch of rocks so the animals don't go it. And then sometime in the future, uh, you know, you're going to be hungry and uh, hunting didn't go well, and you're going to go and eat it. And that's sort of like your parachute. You're going to save yourself. But that's, that's to recover from a mishap. Maybe you were injured. Maybe, you know, you, you, the, the seal got away that day. And that way you don't starve. It's not your plan A. Uh, that's why people are willing to abandon it and, you know, hope that it's going to be there. There's an honor system around these things. People don't mess with others. Others can, you, you know where it is. Others don't. But, you know, that's your plan uh, B, C, or D. It's not your plan A. Nobody is going to amass six months of food for the entire village and then leave it unguarded. So once you start storing food as your main plan, <clears throat> that's where you live. And for the first time, you have a home. And I have a question you, there. Yes, um, absolutely. You, you mentioned seasonality there. Uh, what yes. do you mean by seasonality? Was a change in temperature? So um, seasonality, I mean the change in, um, uh, in the difference. It's not that it became colder or warmer. It also, and I, it actually, so this is something very interesting. I'll get to it in a second, but it also ended, the, the Ice Age also ended around this time. The Ice Age ended 12,000 years ago, the, the, the last uh, Ice Age. Um, but that's not what's uh, important. Uh, because if all you wanted was warm temperatures, that's, this was the old story. One of the old stories that's been circulating is the Ice Age ends and shortly after agriculture arrives. So clearly it must have been too cold before that to do farming. This sounded like perfectly reasonable if you look at just the Middle East. But the point is Africa was never glaciated. So if all you needed was warm weather, well, why didn't you do it in Ghana 30,000 years ago, 60,000 years ago, 80,000 years ago? So what my answer is, is that during the Ice Age, it's not that what was missing was warm areas. Uh, what, was, what was missing was areas that were warm during the uh, summer and very cold during the winter. Okay. Because all of those areas that today are seasonal were just uniformly cold. Or rather, if you have, you know, five degrees in summer and minus 40 in winter, it does, once you go below zero, it's just, you know, nothing grows. So it doesn't matter. Um, uh, but what's important is like, there's not, you know, what you want is a place that's 25 degrees in summer and minus 10 in winter. So say a place like Germany, perhaps would have been a good candidate. Um, even though it, you know, Germany became warmer so late that by that time, agriculture had arrived from the Middle East. That, that's sort of my interpretation. In your paper, uh, now, 
Yes. I also have another question. Sorry, I'm very curious about your research. And you also mentioned that farmers ate less than hunter and gatherers. So you you told the story about like how people were starting, started to store food, but how can you explain these counterintuitive results? So there's two, there's two reasons. So if you look at hunter gatherers, uh, they're typically quite tall. They're about as tall as modern populations, in fact. They might be 175, 176. And uh, especially in the Middle East, they lost 12, 13 centimeters uh, over a few thousand years. So they go from being uh, German to Sicilians, uh, effectively. Uh, or Sicilians, you know, not even from my, from my parents' generation, the, the, the war. Uh, so they go from being 177 to being 165, 160 for the, for the, for the women. I don't remember the exact number, but they lose more than 10 centimeters. Uh, and this has to be explained. And then people remain at this lower height all through time uh, for thousands of years until the Industrial Revolution effectively. So the, the idea is that when you were um, a hunter-gatherer, uh, you are eating uh, episodically. So you're eating a lot when there's been somebody killed a big animal and you're not eating a lot when all you have is some pistachio nuts that you have to you sort of split four ways for the whole family. Um, and, uh, but you can move around and you can go to the places with the most food. Now, what happens when you store food in the short run is that you became sedentary. So there's some faraway place that you could have gone to get food, perhaps in the winter, that you no longer have access to. So mechanically, the amount of food you have in the short run goes down simply because you still don't know how to farm because you just became sedentary in order to store food. And there's some food sources you no longer access because you're no longer moving around. So that's for the short run. Now, for the long run, I have to introduce uh, the, one assumption, which is basically a modification on the Malthusian model. Did the students do the Malthus yet? Or? Yes, we'll talk about That's that. Perfect. Yes. So, so it's just a Malthusian story. The only difference that I'm adding is that now I'm saying that not only does more food make people have more kids, but having more volatility in food makes women have less kids, at least less kids that survive. Okay, so uh, what I'm basically saying is that if I give a woman uh, or, or a family let's, or a group 2,000 uh, calories in summer and winter, they have a certain amount of kids. If I give her 3,000 calories in summer and only 1,000 in winter, there will be fewer surviving kids. Okay, which I think is a very reasonable, I mean, in the limit, it's obviously true, right? Because uh, if I gave you 500 calories in the winter and you know, very few of them would survive. Um, now, so what happens is that the more, for a given amount of food that's available, the more volatility there is, the lower the population is going to be given the amount of food available on average. So what's going to happen if I give you 2,000 calories, 3,000 calories in summer and 1,000 in winter is that the population will go down until that those proportions will remain the same, but perhaps it's 1,500 calories in winter and 4,500 calories in summer because the population decreased because it wasn't sustainable. And now those 4,500 calories mean there's going to be a growth spurt in the summer in the kids, and they're all going to be super high. So, so sorry, they're going to be super tall. 
And then, you know, there's going to be a growth arrest episode in the winter because they're not eating enough. Yeah. Uh, and that is why the hunter-gatherers are taller because they're eating a lot, but they're eating in sort of big, you know, big amounts during one season and not eating a lot during the other. But the thing is, um, there's something called catch-up growth, which was evidenced, for example, in the um, Netherlands, the, 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 the case everybody cites is the Netherlands, during World War II, in which uh, when the Germans retreated, there was no food until the Americans arrived. And what happened was that the growth arrest, there was a growth arrest episodes in all of the youths that were growing. So growth, you know, if you look at how tall they are, they, they, they stop. But then when they start eating a ton, because they're eating all of these American rations, the, the growth curve grows again, and again fits with where you would have expected it to be. Now, the interesting thing is that this faster growth process leaves a different kind of bone uh, inside the long bones. As you're growing, you know, there's new bone material being deposited, and there's a more uh, compact type of bone, which you can see in x-rays. You see a white line, and these are called Harris lines. And if you look at the bones of hunter-gatherers, they're taller, but they have more of these growth arrest lines. Well, if you say yeah. that the farmers, they're shorter, but they don't have these growth arrest lines. And if you look at uh, populations from, say, the 1800s in Alaska, Inuits, there's this family that collapsed. Everybody had one of these every year, because every year there was a hunger period in the spring before, I forget if it was the narwhals or some migratory animal appeared, and they were always starving, and they got these growth arrest lines. And so this was actually the first evidence I have for my story was these growth arrest lines. Unfortunately, it's expensive to do x-rays. And anthropologists, you know, if they have money, they'd rather pay, you know, a postdoc to go to Egypt uh, or, you know, go do an excavation rather than like pay the medical, you know, school to do some x-rays. So I was never able to find this. You know, I immediately found seven cases in which this was true, that the number of growth arrest lines decreased. And I was never able to find any more of this. Because what anthropologists seem, the, the interesting thing was that if you look at any other indicator, um, it gets worse with farming. They become shorter, they have more joint diseases, or they're working harder, uh, they have worse teeth, everything is worse except the Harris lines. And so what anthropologists concluded was there must be something wrong with Harris lines because they don't correlate with anything else. But from an economist's point of view, it's like, no, they're measuring two completely different things because everything else, height is the integral of how much you eat and well, effect, I mean, obviously, you know, to, to an approximation, is the integral of how much you've eaten uh, while you were growing up. So effectively, it's the average. While the Harris lines, it's measuring the volatility. And what I'm saying is that volatility went down a lot and uh, uh, average food consumption also went down but that this was their reward. There was nothing you know, silly about it. It's just they decided we'd rather eat a little bit less, but always eat, rather than gorge ourselves in the summer or during the wet season and starve during the, um, and starve during the, uh, uh, the, the, the dry season or during the winter. And what's interesting of this is that I think the reason why it didn't you know, why I thought about this and not, you know, somebody 200 years ago is because we're so used to having storage. We're so used to having a pantry with food that we think in terms of averages. You know, we, we, we typically, I mean, now there's a pandemic, there's unemployment insurance running out in the U.S. So, 
Now it's going to be salient again. And I, I was thinking about the stuff right after the financial crisis. So here I am, you know, thinking about volatility after. So every, this is the interesting thing about the Neolithic is that every, and then and, and the Roman Empire and the fall of the Roman Empire and a few other cases that every historian always sees current events, you know, reflected into the past. So, you know, in the 70s, they were worried about the environment. So they were worried about overpopulation. So they thought clearly they had to do agriculture because of overpopulation. And the Roman Empire, oh, it fell because of inflation, because we're worried about inflation. And then, you know, as, as sort of, you know, the current situation changes, people, you know, the interpretation for the past changes. And I'm, I'm not out of this, I'm part of this, 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 this movement. I think I, I have good evidence for it and that it was just the inspiration. But the reason why you think people didn't think about this is because people tend to think in averages, because usually we have access to banks, we have access to granaries for the past five, 6,000 years. We have access to all of these things that allow us to smooth consumption. So we're not really worried about this week versus the next week. We're worried about, I'm not making enough money in general uh, yeah. you know, to finance my consumption. But I, I think this is different. Instead, for a hunter-gatherer, I'm eating right now an elephant, but I, I'm worried I'm going to be hungry next week. This is not something that happens uh, to modern societies typically, because if I have a lot, you know, I can sell it, get some gold, you know, put it in a hole. And when I don't have it, I, you know, I sell the gold and I buy, you know, meat. And, you know, I, you never have this like juxtaposition of, of plenty yeah. and hunger at such a short radius. And this is exactly, you know, the moment in time I think in which humans uh, got rid of this was because they became sedentary in order to store food. Now, I mean, one first, sorry. Okay. So the, um, you, you started talking about the data. So um, yes. you must have spent years just putting together pieces of yes. evidence. So what kind of data do you use and how did you find it? Yeah. So I was incredibly lucky uh, because of global warming. Uh, because of global warming, everybody is, is sort of freaking out about climate and everybody is interested in how the climate was in the past. So be yeah. Because of all this uh, uh, study of like, well, how it's like, is this the highest increase in temperature ever? So, so somebody actually simulated uh, the climate for the last 20,000, 22,000 years. It's a researcher called Feng He. He was at the University of Wisconsin when he gave me the data. I don't know if he's since, you know, I don't know. I, he was incredibly kind, but I, I haven't kept track of his movements. And uh, what he is doing, it's called a coupled circulation uh, climate simulation. And basically it's taking some things that we know of boundary conditions or where the continents are or what the chemistry of the atmosphere was from glaciers. We know this sort of thing, uh, where the glaciers were, all of this sort of uh, uh, stuff. And then he's sort of simulating it as if, you know, he's simulating, you know, the atmosphere and the ice caps and uh, the oceans and the biosphere. And that's uh, giving us gridded information for the past 22,000 years on climate. Now, clearly, you know, there, there is a, a value point, data point for 2,560 versus 2,559. That's meaningless difference. But what's important for my things is like sort of the millennial change from one millennia to the next. And the fact that it gives me uh, data points for both winter and summer. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's perfectly accurate, but it means that it gives a good idea of the fact that how much more seasonal was Scandinavia versus the Mediterranean 
um, you know, 5,000 years versus 6,000 years ago. That's, a, you know, a pretty reliable from that point of view, because what it depends on is the shape of the orbit. What it ultimately drives the climate on Earth, these changes and these, this is, this is an incredible story. It's a, 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 a Yugoslavian or Serbian or Croatian, you know, it's like Tesla. You don't want to ask how you could start wars with this, but, um, but with, with, it was, his name was Milankovic. And he was the first one that realized that because of the influence of the other planets, Earth's axis, it tilts. It becomes more tilted sometimes, and sometimes it becomes straighter. And when it's more tilted, the climate is more seasonal. And when it's straighter, the climate is less seasonal. And this also drives the ice ages. And he actually calibrated this by calculating what the climate should be on Venus. And he got it you know, almost exactly right. When they actually were able to measure the temperature, he was, he was almost perfectly correct. So a very clever person. And this is what happened 12 years ago, Earth's axis of rotation was more tilted. And because of this, there was more seasonality. And this is ultimately in my story, this is why they all start around the same time around the world, because temperature becomes more seasonal and the monsoon becomes stronger, which means that the rainfall also becomes more seasonal. And if you look at what are the places where you would predict it's places that are between 30 and, you know, sort of 40 degrees of latitude. Because if you're any more to the north, the summers are not as warm. And if you're any more to the south, then the winters are not as cold. But in that band, that's where you have like sort of four season climate. We have a very good summer and a very bad winter. And there's another latitude band, uh, which is between 7 and 15 degrees. And this has to do with the intertropical convergence zone. There's these monsoons that move to the north and to the south. And if you're at the equator, it always rains. But if you're just off the equator, it sometimes rains. And those are, you know, the deserts of Australia and the deserts of, um, uh, uh, of the Sahara and the Atacama Desert are all within this latitude band. And this is uh, also where agriculture started. And then you might ask, well, but why not Australia? Why not uh, South America? Why not Argentina? Why not these places that look a bit like the Middle East have a similar, well, they have a similar climate today, but they did in 12,000 years ago. And the reason for this is that right now, uh, Earth's axis of rotation is tilted. Well, for example, right now it's uh, that's the solstice. Uh, uh, so what was one day after? So what's happening is that the North Pole is tilted away from the sun, which means it's winter. But at the same time, um, we're actually a little bit closer to the sun right now. So, uh, yeah, so the two effects cancel. I have to remember which way it goes. So the two effects cancel out in the northern hemisphere because we're tilted away, but we're closer to the northern, to the sun. So, uh, you know, the two effects cancel out. While in Australia right now, not only are you tilted towards the sun, uh, but you're also closer to the sun because close, the whole planet is closer. So in, in the southern, now, uh, sorry, the two effects magnify. So you have a really warm summer and you have a really cold winter given the latitude. Now, 12,000 years ago, it was the opposite. So in the northern hemisphere, not only was the planet more tilted, but during the winter, when we were tilted away in the northern hemisphere, we were also further away from the sun. And in the southern hemisphere, the two effects canceled out. So the reason why you don't have, you have agriculture in North America, twice in China, in the Middle East, 
but you didn't have it in Australia, South Africa, or Argentina, in my interpretation, is because those places did not have this big increase in seasonality. The climates are similar today, but they were not similar at the time. This is sort of the, the, the why not? The same. Yeah, amazing. So um, ultimately what you put together is a data set that uh, looks at grid cells around uh, the planet. And then you have changes in climate over long periods. And you yes. document that indeed in line with your theory where seasonality increases, you have a transition from hunter gathering to, to farming. So that's all amazing. But then another puzzle piece is that you uh, look at, at height, and that's where you use uh, bones and, and the like that give you yes. an indication of people's height even thousands of years ago, right? Exactly. So, so that's, uh, that, that's more descriptive because I only have like seven observations. Uh, no, sorry. So for height, I guess I have like 10 or 12. It's all taken from a single book. Um, and uh, what it shows is that it decreases when they become farmers. And indeed, for the Middle East, which is a place where we observe them being first uh, nomadic hunter-gatherers, then sedentary hunter-gatherers in the Tufan population, and then settled farmers, we see that the drop in height doesn't happen when they start farming. It happens when they become sedentary. That is when mm. they start storing food. Uh, so some people say, oh, it's because of, you know, they were farming at schooling work, or maybe they're eating too many cereals. But it actually happened, you know, before they even knew how to farm. And what seems to matter is the fact that you become sedentary. Um, the other, so I, with the with the data, I show two things. I show that um, having more seasonal climate makes it more likely that you're going to invent agriculture. And then I also show that the spread of agriculture happened faster if in a more seasonal climate. So there's a sort of frontier kind of like the Wild West, a frontier of like uh, people advancing over Europe, over, you know, in, in Asia and all the continents. And I show that the more seasonal you are, the more seasonal your climate, the, the, the faster you adopt agriculture once your neighbors have adopted it. I see, okay. And then the, the, yeah. the final kind of evidence uses altitude. And here uh, it's sort of like an indirect uh, test and I'm only looking at the Middle East. So I'm only looking at a place that had wild wheat growing more or less everywhere and has a very similar climate. So I'm keeping those factors constant. And what the idea is, is that if you have a lot of variations in altitude, then there's probably different microclimates. So that means you're probably going to be able to find food in different seasons because you can go up the hill in the summer, but there's still going to be some rainfall up high. And then you can go down the hill in winter where there's still going to be some warmth down low. And what I show is that if you have a lot of variation in altitude within five kilometers, then you start um, farming earlier because it's easier to become sedentary here. While instead, if you have a lot of variation, if there's not a lot of variation locally, but there's a lot of variation in a 50 kilometer radius, so imagine like a very gently, you know, sloping plateau that becomes higher. Then you start farming later. And the reason for this is that this, this change variation in altitude is your opportunity cost of becoming settled. Because when you become settled, you see the mountain in the distance and it's all green and it's summer and everything is dry. And you're saying, no, this is where we have our stocks and we're staying here. But you can see 
you know, you know that there's food there. So, so the idea is that the more variation in altitude within a migratory distance, within 50 kilometers, the later you adopt agriculture. And this is in fact what we see. And this is sort of like a completely novel prediction. It's actually inspired by the earliest Neolithic settlement in Sicily, which is just such a place. It's a big cave on the side of a hill uh, with the sea right next to it. So it was a very good place to become sedentary because you had the south slope, you had the north slope, you had the top, you had the food, you had the, the seashells, seafood. So you could sort of, it was a very good place to become sedentary because you could find food uh, throughout various parts of the year. That was sort of the... Look, Andrea, um, we have to slowly come to an Absolutely. end. So yes. tell us a little bit about um, how you got to work on this because you were trained as an economist and a lot of, um, yes. of that research also goes into anthropology, archaeology. And uh, so how did it all come together? Absolutely. So um, uh, the, the original, well, so first of all, I'm from Sicily, which has a lot of history. So I was always very interested in history. I also liked it a lot in high school. This particular project came from the fact that my mom uh, lived in Iran for two years. Uh, she was teaching Italian there. And there we visited uh, a step pyramid, one of these zikurats, in a place called Choga Zambil, which is close to uh, Akhlaz in the south. And uh, uh, what I noticed was that I was trying to photograph it and it was hard. And the reason it was hard was because it was exactly the same color as the earth that it was built upon. So it was hard to get good separation between the pyramid. It just looked like a mound of dirt. And then I realized, well, of course, because it's built out of the mud from the plain. And then I thought, so this is actually, you know, if you look at Mesopotamia, it's, if you wanted to build an enormous structure, the cheapest place you could possibly build it is in the Mesopotamian plain, because there's a lot of clay there's water, but it doesn't rain. So you don't need to fire the bricks uh, because you know, they, they don't erode. So you don't, have, you don't need stone tools. Uh, you don't need like, you know, metal tools to break the stone. You can just you know, make mud bricks and then stack them and you make an enormous structure. And so I thought, why is it that, uh, that you know, civilization would start in a place with a low construction cost? And I thought, well, it's because you need to defend the stores you have. So, uh, you know, if you have low construction costs, you can build fortifications, and that means you can defend the stores. And that was my undergraduate thesis. And then I talked to this to Joachim, my advisor that, you know, Sasha knows very well. And he said, you know, there's also this other story about like people becoming short. Maybe you could figure out a way of adapting, you know, the idea of storage to that. And that was my, uh, 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 so it was an outgrowth of actually an even earlier project that I had. And then I started thinking about the storage and I was like, well, how, why would, why would they all start at the same time? And then I found out about Milankovitch cycles. And so, okay, so, so seasonality increased a lot. And that's why uh, they needed to store all at the same time. They had a higher decrease. And then I found that the start paper, so it was a little bit like Forrest Gump, you know, when he starts running and he said, well, and then I ran until the end of the road. And I said, well, if I got to the end of the road, I could go into town, you know, 15 years later, hopefully I can get this paper published. But uh, uh, I, I never planned it out that it was going to be this sort of uh, huge thing. It's just that every time I had like a little, well, maybe I can also answer this question. Uh, and then I, I just, I just chased it down. That was, uh, you know. Well, that's a color. 15 years project, pretty much. It's uh, on and off. Uh, I mean, you know, it was also, you know, taking courses when I started this. I started as a term 
uh, as a class project for uh, Joachim's class. Uh, and then it, again, like, um, okay, well, I guess I could make it into my third year paper. And then, you know, uh, uh, and so if, if, if one of your students, if somebody is going to do something like this, what I did, I'm almost incredibly scared of, 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 you know, overstepping and saying something that is completely false and is known to be false in archaeology. So this, every time I went to present somewhere, if I went to present to Oxford, I would go to the uh, archaeology department webpage, find who was working on the Neolithic and stay an extra day so that, you know, ask them if I could talk to them and go over it. And then when I went to Brown, I presented at the, at the Brownback Seminar for the archaeology group. I also followed a uh, course. Um, and everywhere you go, you have to constantly, everywhere you go, you're always trying to get as much face time with archaeologists. So I presented this to two archaeology seminars as well. And, you know, and I have to say they've been incredibly much more accepting than the media and economics seminar would be if an archaeologist waltzed in with a new theory <laughs> for the money multiplier. Uh, we should all learn from archaeologists. You know, I was expecting, you know, perhaps there would be some defensiveness or who's this guy. They were incredibly open. Uh, obviously, there's always, a, you know, some people were more um, um, enthusiastic about the idea than others, but an archaeologist was on my defense committee for my PhD. So if, if you're going to, like today, you would just co-author with an archaeologist, which is what I'm doing. I have a project on Russian serfdom. I'm just co-authoring with a Russian historian. Uh, uh, it would have saved me a lot of time. It would have been much easier if, if somebody's going to do something multidisciplinary, just co-author with a guy that does that for a living. Uh, this is what, there's this great paper by Chem. Uh, I forget his name. You know the paper about the Assyrian tablets? No. That uh, sounds exciting. Yeah. Sorry? Sounds it's, exciting, it's but exciting. I don't know what very, you're referring to. Yeah. It's, there's this paper on, uh, they did, a, they, they had these Assyrian letters, uh, merchant letters from who knows which millennia, like third millennia or second millennia before Christ. And uh, they're commercial letters, like saying, I went here and here. And some of the cities are lost. And they estimate a gravity model of trade. And that allows them to predict, like, where the missing cities that we, you know, we have the name, but we don't uh, know yeah. where it yeah, is. I think our, yeah. They're able to predict where it is. Now, they did that with an Assyrian uh, or an Assyrologist. With, uh, they co-authored, there's three economists and one person who just lives and breathes this. Because from the outside, it's very difficult. Even if you read all the papers, you don't know which papers, you know, are sort of well-respected in the field and which one some guy wrote it and it's there. Uh, but everybody has been sort of, you know, you know every field has their internal reasons why there's stuff that doesn't get sort of refuted in the print. But, you know, if you go and ask them, they'll explain to you exactly why that uh, <laughs> uh, doesn't happen, which is also why you cannot just speak to one archaeologist because like economists, archaeologists have their own ideas about stuff. So you should speak to an archaeologist and then you should speak to another archaeologist and then you should speak to another one because you don't want everything that's in your paper to rely on a particular interpretation of a stick which that particular archaeologist thinks is clearly a divinity uh, some kind of, uh, you know, bull god, while everybody else just thinks that it's a stick and, you know, I don't know why he's sewing up. So that's the, the, the trick is to co-author with, you know, if I go back, which is what I'm doing for my current projects, if you're going to access, you know, specific knowledge, just co-author with an archaeologist or an historian. Uh, they know all this stuff. It's going to take you a lot less, it's going to, you know, give you a lot less time to, 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 to sort of come up to speed. 
I, I think that's what makes your research very exciting. Like, I hope to see more and more interdisciplinary research with archaeologists, anthropologists, sociologists. I, I think it's an incredible uh, opportunity. It's, uh, it's, it's typically very slow. I was lucky because there was this climate thing, which is systematic. There's an incredible amount of archaeology data, but you know it's not been systematized and nobody collected exactly the same variables. But if somebody has money and hires like three archaeology postdocs to go through boxes and you know catalog stuff in a particular way, like there's 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 you can you can tackle a lot of uh, very important historical questions. So, for example, I talked to Bob Allen the other day. Um, maybe beep it. I don't know if it's, I don't know if the project is out, but we're talking about uh, Babylonian. Uh, uh, so if you could just bleep the name, I don't know if, if the project is out yet, but uh, we are talking about Babylonian uh, canals. So nobody has made a map of, uh, you know, irrigation canals in Mesopotamia. Uh, now there's 6,000 papers each on like that specific canal or you know the 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 curve in the canal outside of El Jabar, or whatever you know. But if you actually want to map, okay, like irrigation important, Babylonia important, you know Mesopotamia, where were these things? Uh, uh, so he's he's collecting this. He's putting together the first map ever made of every irrigation work in Mesopotamia, wow. which is clearly incredibly important. But, uh, you know, it, like uh, when, when I asked uh, uh, my, my advisor, Marco Madella, who, well, when I'm one of my sort of, he was on my PhD committee, I uh, asked him, you know, like, so how do you do this? He says, well, I think this would be a great project for a postdoc with a Marie Curie grant working for three years. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the good thing is economists tend to have, it's easier for us to fundraise than it is for archaeologists, or at least Archaeologists, they fundraise a lot, but they blow it all on excavations because they want to go to Egypt and, you know, dig it out. Um, so, for example, for this paper, one of the referees asked me, uh, well, could you go into the history of the other seven places? Uh, and I hired a postdoc, an archaeology postdoc, to do a literature review. Again, because, like, if I tried to do it, I'm going to miss something huge that everybody knows about, or I'm going to take a source just because I found it on Google Scholar was a top result, but actually everybody knows that that's been discredited except me. Uh, but you know, I paid him two, I forget if it was two or 3,000 uh, uh, euros. And you know, he did a full literature review and he did it. And you know, he was very happy to do it. And uh, so, so money that's not a lot of money in economics is quite a bit of money in anthropology. And so there really isn't, you know, economists should be ambitious about saying, no, I want to know every last fire temple, Zoroastrian fire temple in Iran, where they were. And I'm just going to pay a guy who's specialized on this to collect this data, or I'm going to co-author with him. I yeah. think there's, there's innumerable projects. We shouldn't just say, you know, hands back, well, the data doesn't exist. It's, it's, it buy. wouldn't be that expensive to pay anthropology postdocs uh, to... Um, to collect the data that you want. You don't have to sort of just say, well, you know, there's no Stata database already uh, uh, collected. But I would, I mean, obviously there's a way of doing archive work if you're an economic historian and you can get training in that and you can good, you know, people get very good at that. I think with archeology, span it's a little bit better to rely on, uh, on, on people that do this for a living. I, I did it the hard way, which was, you know, by bumping my head and getting corrected a lot. 
going back, I would just say, you know, hey, let's find an archaeology PhD. It's going to be clear what I did and what you did because it's very different toolkits. So there's no, I mean, we might have to decide where to publish it. That This is usually the hardest thing with multidisciplinary stuff is do you publish it in an econ journal or do you publish it in an archaeology? So it's, you know, it's great if one side is tenured and it's just sort of happy to get the story out there. And then you can publish in the, in the, field of the untenured person. Well, that's, I hope we're going to see more of these. Uh, we need to wrap it up, unfortunately. I will be Absolutely. Well, you're a PhD student. Why don't you do it? It's, uh, uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> I'm working on the archives. Now the problem is like just getting somewhere. <laughs> yes, yes. It's like we're probably, uh, the archives work, we'll need to wait until 2022 if we're lucky. Um, for now, it's just Absolutely. Australia. So we'll, we're work in progress. But uh, I'm sure there will be like more exciting work coming in the future, going to archives of like sites. Like I love interdisciplinary inter, uh, work. It's very exciting. Andrea, thank you so much for your presentation. Your paper was very, very interesting. Uh, thank you for having me. Always have you back in the future for your future research. Thanks for, Anytime. thanks to Sasha for running the interview. Thanks Andrea. And I'll amazing. see you guys at the next one. Perfect. See you soon. Looking okay. forward to seeing it uh, online. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye.